0: Today's reading is from Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You were neither cold nor hot. I know your works. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right. Thank you, Emmett, <clears throat> and your armor-bearer, John. <laughs> Appreciate all of that. Say, so um, regarding this uh, marriage retreat, when people ask me about it and they say, well, who's going to be uh, speaking at the retreat, I, I tell them that we're, we are bringing in speakers all the way from 16th Street and Glendale. To speak, and they get excited when I say bringing in, and then they hear 16th Street in Glendale, and it's like, oh, okay, whatever. So uh, glad to, to see you. My name is Frank. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. We're going through the book of uh, Revelation, and uh, we started last week with chapter one. Today, we get to do chapters two and three. And so I would encourage you to have your Bible open because we are going to read every word of two and three, and I'll explain more about that in just a second. So to review a little bit, the Apostle John, <clears throat> excuse me. The Apostle John is uh, in the early to mid 90s. He's on the island of Patmos, which is uh, just off the coast from the city of Ephesus, which is has one of the churches that'll be written to uh, today. And he's on the Isle of Patmos in exile, and he's being persecuted for proclaiming uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, And he has a vision. Jesus comes to him. The resurrected Christ comes to him and tells John to take down all these words, including not only all the revelations that we get that we're going to look at over the next several Sundays after today, but also Jesus says... Write these seven letters to the seven different churches in, these, in this area, and that's what we're going to study today. And remember, the number seven represents completion or perfection, and so the number seven represents that these letters are written to every church at any time in history, including our church today. Now, the dilemma is that there are seven of these letters, so the question I had Uh, in preparing for this was, do I take one of the seven letters and go deep and sort of allow the letter that I choose to represent all the other letters, or do I approach each letter, cover each letter, but do it with the same grid, asking the same questions but not going as deep? And I've chosen the latter because each letter uh, has some similarities, but each letter also addresses different problems all of them relevant to the contemporary 21st century church, and all of them we need to talk about. And so I'd I'd rather run through this a little bit more quickly, but give us the opportunity to engage with all of those issues and questions. And so we're going to look at each of the seven letters through the grid of asking these four questions if Jesus has words of affirmation for the church, what is the affirmation? If Jesus has something against the church, what is it that he has against the church? If Jesus does have something against the church, what's his rebuke and counsel for correction? And then what is the application for us today? In other words, uh, what does it mean for the church, 21st century application for the 21st century church? And we're going to look at this, what does it mean to us personally as well? So Two different divisions there. So we're going to be moving fast, and here we go. The first letter to the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested all who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll talk about them in another letter because they come up twice. He who has an ear, let him hear uh, what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers or to the one who overcomes. And it's that word Nike that we talked about four weeks ago in, in 1 John. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat. Of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So, right out of the gate, Jesus is clear about who he is writing to this church in Ephesus. He says, I hold the seven stars in my right hand. And remember, last week we talked about how the seven stars are the seven messengers of these seven churches, or the seven pastors of these churches. In other words, Jesus is in charge of every church. The pastors of any church can only lead in submission to Jesus. But also, there's potential for a bit of a double entendre or two-layer meaning here as well that I didn't mention last week. Um, Seven stars also represents in ancient Roman cosmology and Roman government, seven stars is kind of like code speak for rebellion against the Roman authority, And so what Jesus may also be saying, besides the fact that he holds the pastors in his hands, he also holds any rebellion against his authority in his hands. In other words, you cannot mock God, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. In other words, anybody who tries to rebel against Jesus is going to come up against the sovereign authority of God in doing so, and that's going to be a problem for them. He also says, I walk among the seven golden lampstands. And again, last week we talked about how the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. So they represent all churches. So Jesus is at our church. He is in our church. And the question is, do we acknowledge that? And I'm not going to do this for every city, but I have to mention this about Ephesus Um, Interestingly, Ephesus is the largest of the seven cities that uh, Jesus is going to be writing through John, and Ephesus is known for, of all things, first of all, they're known for pagan worship, and just about everybody knows that. There were pagan temples all over Ephesus, and they had false gods. Everybody knows that, but Ephesus in the late first century was also known for organized crime. Isn't that exciting? The Corleone family, I think, got its start in Ephesus. Maybe, I don't know, I... But that fascinates me that they they were actually, there were these bands of families that were extorting money from the merchants in Ephesus. So that's been going on for longer than just 100 years, okay? So what's the affirmation for Ephesus? Well, they are persevering. They are enduring. They're patient. And. They are willing to do the challenging and testy work of confronting and sending away false teachers in their church. That's really important. But Jesus says, I have this against you. You are working so hard at doing church that you've forgotten about me, your first love. You've gotten pretty good at doing church without me, without Jesus, and Jesus is the point of the church, and yet you're doing it without me, which is unsustainable. Eventually, this will be a problem for you, and you will go away, especially because I'm going to remove the lampstand from you. I will not have my hand of blessing on you anymore. And so you've lost your first love. You're distracted. You're guilty of mission drift. So the solution and correction is this, repent and get back to the basics You need to keep the main thing, the main thing. And like I said, he's going to remove his lampstand if they don't do this. So, 21st century application for the church. I will tell you, so many people want the church to be what the church is not. I've been doing this for 25 years, and it is just amazing how people in the church will continuously come at me, or any pastor in a church, come at me and want us to be something that the church was never meant to be. There's nothing in Scripture that says anything about you being that in the church. It has to do with style preferences. I don't like the music here. I don't like, uh, I don't like the preaching here. Why are you even here? I don't understand that. But I, you need to do this differently. You need to do that differently. Your carpet needs to be a different color. Whatever it is. Preferences, your coffee, to do a different coffee, all about the preferences, and then this church will be successful. No, this church is going to be successful, not on our work, but on Jesus' work, the Holy Spirit's work. Then there's morality. It's amazing how often we bring up stuff in the scriptures, in the Bible, and people are like, mm, eh. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about this morality. Let's talk about that morality. But that's not in the Bible. Yeah, but it makes me feel more comfortable. And it makes me feel better about myself. Okay? And then and then subject matter. Now, this is where we get really crazy. And until you become a pastor, you're not going to have stories like this. And you're going to think that, that any pastor who tells stories like this is, is, is exaggerating or being hyperbolic. And it's just not true. Believe it or not, people have come to me and said, why don't you talk more about dieting during your sermons? Here's another one. This is my favorite. This is my favorite one. Um, Now, thankfully, this has never happened at Redemption Arcadia, but it did at my last church. People would come to me and say, why aren't you talking more about breastfeeding in your sermons? The importance of breastfeeding. And I would say, talk more about it? I have never talked about it. (laughs) This is the first time I've ever mentioned breastfeeding in a sermon, is to say that I'm not going to preach on breastfeeding. Is that okay with you all? But people come, do church according to my preferences and what's important to me, not what's important to God. That's what's happening in Ephesus. And so personally, what's distracting you from Jesus? You sit down to read the Bible for five minutes and within the first 30 seconds, your phone is crying out to you. Okay, turn the stinking thing off for five minutes. Okay, how are your preferences and your idols usurping the call of God in your life? and thus you are missing God's favor and blessing. Here's the second church, Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, rich in Christ, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, That you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So, again, look how Jesus identifies himself. He is the first and the last, he's God. And he died and came to life. This is very important for Smyrna. Because the church in Smyrna was suffering heavy persecution for their faith. And Jesus says, well, I also suffered and I was crucified, but I came back. I was resurrected. So you will also come back. You will also be resurrected. And that's verse uh, 11 where he says, you will not be hurt by the second death. You're going to be resurrected. So for Smyrna, they have tremendous, Jesus has tremendous uh, affirmation for Smyrna. He says, you people in Smyrna have legitimate struggles. He says, you are not playing the victim. You are legitimate victims, and yet you persevere. Here's what I've discovered in the the year 2023. Legitimate victims persevere. Actual victims persevere. Fake victims whine and seek attention. I don't know if anybody else has noticed that. I've noticed it, so it must be true. But in in Smyrna, they're really being persecuted and they're living out what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. They were hard-pressed on every side, but they were not crushed because they have faith in Jesus. And he says, this I have against you. Jesus says, nothing. First Baptist Church of Smyrna rocks. But this I do have for you. I have a warning for you. You're about to suffer even more, and it'll be for your faith. And we're reminded of 1 Peter 3 where Peter writes, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that you will endure on account of Jesus. The solution or correction that Jesus offers the church in Smyrna is simply to double down on your commitment to faith and your covenant to Christ and to each other. And the 21st century application for the church is this. When the church stands up to the pressures and dogma of the world, it's the right thing to do, and it's what we're called in Christ to do, but that does not mean it'll be easy. Church faith, I'm sorry, church and faith is not all sunshine and rainbows, but rather it is often thunder and lightning and sometimes even hurricane force winds. And for the personal application, just consider what James wrote in chapter 1. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. Letter number 3, the church at Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Uh Uh-oh. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that's in Numbers, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some that are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, second time the Nicolaitans are mentioned. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus is full of grace and he is eager to dispense that grace. But he is also full of truth, which means that Jesus is going to confront, rebuke, and correct And so for Pergamum, the affirmation is your church, your faith community is right in the center of the belly of the beast. You are in Satan's front yard. Uh, Ancient Pergamum had many pagan temples just like Ephesus did. And that's what Jesus is referring to. And he says, even though you're in the midst of all of that pagan worship and all the pressure that that brings, you refuse to deny me, Jesus, even though it would bring you great temporal relief. You ever been in that conversation where you're really getting uncomfortable with the way somebody's treating you and it's because you're a believer in Jesus and, and, and you just, you just want to shrink up and say, okay, okay, maybe I'm not, I'm sort of a Christian, okay, because it'll bring you some temporal relief. The church at Pergamum is refusing to do that. They have incredible steadfastness, but Jesus says this I have against you. There are many in your church who are not living according to the teaching of Jesus, but rather according to the God's doctrines and fads of this world. They practice and engage in, without any correction, rebuke, or discipline, from the church leaders, you're practicing idolatry, sexual immorality, and following many false teachings, including that of the Nicolaitans. I wasn't going to mention anything about this, but I, um, in research I found this, and it was so... Um, so exacting about who the Nicolaitans were that I thought it would be helpful, so I'm just going to read it. Uh, this is from a third-century church father, so maybe about 120 years later afterwards, a guy named Victorinus, who wrote about the error of the Nicolaitans and why they were false teachers, and here's what he writes. And by the way, he says, uh, Victorinus says, the Nicolaitans were named for their leader, Nicholas. Now, we have an elder here named Nicholas. Nicholas. And so we need to be praying for him that he teaches the right things, especially now because right now what he's doing is he's teaching large group in our children's ministry. So be praying for him that he's not a false teacher. Anyway, so the Nicolaitans taught that you could perform exorcisms on things that had been offered to idols before eating or using them so that you could engage with those things without any condemnation from God. So it was a way of cleansing or consecrating things that were never consecrated to God in the first place, but were actually consecrated to false gods. And here's the second thing. They taught that if there was any sexual immorality uh, that was committed... That sin was blotted out simply by the passing of time, seven days to be exact, so that on day eight you were no longer guilty or responsible in any way, shape, or form to others or to God for that sexual sin. So if you're married and you want to commit adultery, make sure you have a seven-day buffer zone because then you're free of all charges from your spouse or God after you do that. That's what the Nicolaitans taught. It is anti-gospel in the extreme. Do you see how clever we are? Do you see how easy it is for us to go, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I got that. But look at this. I manipulate. There's a core of truth there surrounded by my lies. And so I'm comfortable with that. Okay. And Jesus is saying, this is a huge problem in your church. And so the solution, the correction is one word. Repent. Repent. Turn away from your sin and confront the sin in others. It's a 21st century application for churches. Churches need to be willing to call out ongoing, unrepentant sin for what it is. The concept of a permissive culture or society, we all... Oh, it's, uh, culture and society is so, so permissive these days. It's always been that way for thousands and thousands of years. You and I are also in the belly of the beast right here in Phoenix, Arizona. And personally... Any person who's a part of a church should understand that if they're engaged in ongoing unrepentant sin, they should expect that the church leadership will say something to them about it. It would be unloving and unbiblical not to. And if that church causes you to run or withdraw from the church rather than seeing that the church cares enough about your spiritual well-being to bring this conversation to you, then that is to your own demise. It is to your own self-inflicted injury. Years ago, I was involved in mediation for a church on the west side of Phoenix where one of the elders um, started having an affair with the church secretary. Both of them were married, but not to each other. They were having an affair. They had video evidence of this affair. Video evidence of this affair. Guess what? It split the church. There were people in the church who said we had no right to confront them in their sin. That's a problem. Okay? Fourth church, church at Tyra Tyra on that cheery note. And to the angel in the church, of the church in Tyra Tyra, write this. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like the flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Tyra Tyra, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will them, rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself is, have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him, uh, let him hear uh, the, what the Spirit says to the churches. So verse 18, to Tyra Tyra, Jesus describes himself as one with eyes like a flame of fire, meaning he can see through the veneer of all of our malarkey, nonsense, and deception. In other words, you cannot fool Jesus even with a fooling machine. And for Tyra Tyra, he has some affirmation. He says, you have a deep and abiding faith, love, and a servant's heart, and you patiently endure persecution. But this I have against you. You tolerate false teaching. You tolerate heresy. And here's the thing. Jesus says that he will not only make sure the false teacher spends eternity in hell... Jezebel. Now, who's Jezebel? Jezebel is a reference back to um, uh, the book of Kings, the Old Testament book of Kings. Jezebel was Ahab's wife, and she was instrumental in leading God's people, Israel, away from God to, uh, to worship false gods, Baal, to be, um, to be specific. So she's well known for that, and her death uh, at the hands of, of, of God's work is also well known in the Old Testament. But Jezebel here actually is a name that represents any person in any church throughout the last 2100 years who is a false teacher. If you are a false teacher in a church, you are Jezebel. So he is condemning anybody who teaches falsely in a church. And he says anybody who teaches falsely in a church is going to go to hell, spend eternity in hell. But then get this. Now listen closely to this. Also, those who abide in the heresies of the false teacher will also spend eternity cut off from God. Here you go. Listen to this. You are not off the hook just because you've been deceived. That excuse has already been tried. In the garden, by Eve, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Aren't I off the hook, God? No, you're not. Here come the curses. You are not off the hook just because you've been deceived. We were told in 1 John, that last series we did, we need to test the spirits because there are spirits out there wanting to deceive you and lead you astray. That is the work of Satan. Wow, Frank, that is such tough stuff and you've been really focused on this false teaching issue lately. Do you know why? Because the Bible focuses on it. It's all over the Bible. If you don't think false teachers... And heresy and false prophets are a problem. You're not paying attention. You're not reading your Bible. Here you go today. Go home and read Jeremiah 23. It's 40 verses. It might take you 15 minutes to get through it. But if you think this is harsh, read what God has to say about false prophets in Jeremiah 23. You know, again, I've been doing this a long time, and it's amazing what people come up with. If, If you think that we should be teaching and preaching out of things like People Magazine or the New York Times... Okay? I don't know why you would come to a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. Why would you do that? And why would you come and try to convert us into something that doesn't teach Scripture? I'm, and again, I'm just speaking. There's nobody in here that I'm, nobody has done that here. But it's happened over time. Okay, This happens all the time. Um, my last church, when I took that church, when I went through the search committee's interviews... I told them over and over and over, every Sunday I am going to teach and proclaim the gospel and I'm going to teach the Bible verse by verse, exegetically, expositorily, we're going to go through books of the Bible. Yeah, 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 okay, okay, okay. After six weeks they were freaking out. What are you doing? Okay. And after six weeks I had one lady come to me between services. She walked right up to me and she goes, wow, Frank, you are really obsessed with this Bible thing. (laughs) I don't get it. I don't get it. Okay, I'm telling you, become a pastor, you'll have stories. It's just so much fun. Okay? I don't know why anybody would take the time or make an effort to, to attend a church that doesn't proclaim the gospel and teach the Bible. That's not church. Okay, why would you do that on Sunday morning? Matt's Big Breakfast is open and they have bacon. We don't have bacon here. Where's Stephanie? She's the operations manager. We need bacon (laughs) or bacon flavored coffee. All right. So Jesus says the same thing here. He says the thing uh, and the thing that should cause us at least some consternation is that Jesus says the false teaching to not teach the Bible, the gospel is not some nebulous, neutral thing that will be forgotten. He says eternity in hell is the consequence. And here you go. It's, It's a sin of leadership for sure, but it's also a sin of followership. Don't think that just because you're a follower, you have no culpability in any of this. And, and, and this is the second letter in a row, and the third out of four, where the main problem is actually false teaching. At least Ephesus was pushing against it. If you want to be intellectually honest about the Christian faith, either embrace the scriptures and submit to them, even the parts you don't like, or walk away. You'll be happier. <laughs> Trust me. Okay? Okay. We cannot compromise with God. As Paul says in Galatians, do not deceive yourself. God will not be mocked. So here's the solution and correction. Get rid of the false teachers and get rid of those who support them. And then notice the grace in this letter. Jesus will not lay another burden on those who have not succumbed to this temptation. No, no, no more burdens on you. So what's the 21st century application? I think we've done it for both the church and personally. And so now we have reached that gone with the wind moment of intermission in our service. We're going to have a moment of Selah, and I'm going to pray before we go to the last three letters. Our Father in heaven, again, um, these letters are direct and to the point. They are an economy of words, but that's how Jesus communicates. He knows how to get to the root of the matter and to keep the main thing the main thing, and so As we go through these letters, please, as difficult as they can be, because we have some more difficult ones to go through, please open our hearts and our minds to the fact that uh, you only discipline those that you love. And so help us with that. Help us to to see your word and your son with new and fresh eyes this morning by these letters. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the next letter, the church at Sardis. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church at Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, So for Sardis, Jesus has very little affirmation, and it's, that's charitable, uh, it's a charitable way to put it at best. He starts right out of the gate with his rebuke, and it's not until later in the letter, verse 4, that he commends a few people. There are a few people in the church that are doing okay. So what's the problem in Sardis? He says, this I have against you. Your church is dead. The church accepted the grace and salvation of the gospel, and then they just quit. They fell asleep. He says, you fell asleep. You need to wake up. And this is ironic because Sardis, ancient Sardis, was situated on a hill. And the only times in history up until that point that Sardis was conquered by their enemies was when the watchmen on the watchtower and on the, on the walls of the city fell asleep, thus opening them up themselves up to attack. And so Jesus is saying, you're being attacked because you're asleep. It's also like the church at Sardis. Here you go. I've run several marathons. And because I'm slow, I have to start in the back of the pack in a marathon. And I don't know if you've ever, if, if you've ever never run a marathon, what happens is you're back there with the four-hour people, and the gun goes off, and it takes you a minute and a half to two minutes to cross the starting line before you even start to run your 26 miles. So you're already running before you cross the starting line. It's as though the people in Sardis, the church in Sardis, went to a marathon, they crossed the starting line, and then they walked to their car and gave up. That's what happened in Sardis. They quit following Jesus. They quit loving God. They quit loving others. They just quit. They became indifferent to anything worthy or worthwhile. There was no joy. There was no gratitude. It was a sad existence. So the solution in the correction was to repent and wake up. Remember what has been graciously given to you and be glad. 21st century application. For the church, we need to hear this. Indifference... Indifference, not hate, indifference is the opposite of gratitude, love, and joy. And I never want to be a part of an indifferent church. And personal application, if your favorite word, when it comes to your Christian faith, if your favorite word is whatever, you might be, you might be somebody who has the disease of sardisitis. We've talked about, in Romans 8, a few months ago, about stirring up the Holy Spirit, and if you're feeling indifferent or apathetic or slothful, slothful, whatever, repent, reach out, and let us help you get stirred up. Here's Church 6, Philadelphia. This is not the Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. This is the one over the big pond. And to the church, <clears throat> And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 7, look at the myriad ways Jesus describes himself for Philadelphia. All these terms and characteristics point to one thing, the ultimate and supreme authority of everything lies in Jesus. And so for Philadelphia, their affirmation is that this church has diligently kept the word of Jesus. Uh, it's, he says you have little power. What he's saying to those people is that you have little worldly power. You're among all of these unbelievers, and they are pressing in on you on all sides. And if you would just give up Jesus, then they would have worldly power. And they refuse to do that. They are saying, we have the real ultimate power, and that's the power of Christ. Philadelphia has refused to deny the name of Jesus no matter what. They've been patient in their endurance. They've been patient in their perseverance. And they are calm, and they are confident, but not in themselves. They are calm and confident in Jesus. And then this is what I have against Philadelphia, Jesus says. Imagine being this church, Jesus has nothing against them. Not one thing. In fact, he says, and this is where that authority language comes from in verse 7, Jesus says he will make all the posers, all the fakers, all the false teachers, and all the cultural troublemakers come to the church in Philadelphia and bow down and honor the Lord. That's wild. The solution or correction Philadelphia, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep making the main thing the main thing. 21st century application for the church. We need to remember that the church, this church in Philadelphia had not arrived. They were in a good spot in that moment, but they had not arrived. No church ever arrives until Jesus comes again. No church, you know what happens when a church thinks they've arrived? Complacency. And then Satan gets a foothold. Okay? So there's still plenty of time to drift. We need to stay on mission. And we need to resist the temptation to fall into fads, trends, and crazes. And the personal application is that we should be steady plotters, which is what uh, Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 21. And I know some of you are like, steady plotter, that sounds really boring. I'm a racehorse. No, steady plotting, uh, chapter 21 in Proverbs says, steady plotting brings prosperity, hasty speculation brings poverty. We should embrace and appreciate long obedience in the same direction. Last church, and I know it was already read, but I want to read it again, the church at Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So for Laodicea, the affirmation is none. This is the opposite of Philadelphia, the previous church. In Philadelphia, Jesus had nothing against them. In Laodicea... Jesus has nothing to affirm in them. At least Sardis had a few souls that were still on board. So he says, this I have against you. You're lukewarm. You're mediocre. You're indifferent. You're apathetic. You're passive. You're mediocre. You're mediocre. If you were a church, Jesus says metaphorically, my words, you would be beige if your church were a color. If your church were pants, they would be elastic waist oversized sweatpants. If your church were a sandwich, it would be baloney with cheese whiz on white bread. If your church were a college or a university, it would be U of A? I saw somebody walk in with a Michigan sweatshirt, so why not Ohio State? TCU? Oh, GCU. Okay, church discipline right there. And where does Jesus say this apathy, this mediocrity, this indifference comes from? Where does it say? He says it comes from the distraction of having enough wealth to cover and accommodate most of their problems. As a result, their relationship with Jesus is apathetic, and indifferent. Now, Jesus uses the idea of lukewarm because especially in the historical and geographical context of Laodicea, they would get it. Close to Laodicea on one side to the east is uh, the hot springs of Heropolis. People love to go to those hot springs for healing and energizing. And close to Laodicea, on the other side of the West, is Colise, which was known for their cold springs, their ice cold springs. And people go there for the same reasons. We, you know, Athletes use both heat and ice cold water. You never tell an athlete after a game or after a practice, get in that lukewarm water because it would do absolutely nothing for you. Okay. And 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 so, generally speaking, in the first century and even now, healing, energizing, restorative, and therapeutic waters are always extreme—hot or cold. Lukewarm does nothing; it's just lukewarm. And I admit, I get that, I get this personally and preferentially. For instance, when it comes to food and drink, it drives me crazy when my coffee is not steaming hot or ice cold. And I know coffee connoisseurs say no coffee shouldn't be steaming hot. I. you drink it lukewarm. I'm not going to, okay? I despise it when restaurants serve my food lukewarm. Microwaves drive me crazy because you can never get the middle of whatever you're reheating. Warm. I always have to go back halfway through the meal, something I've heated with a microwave and reheat it again, okay? And finally, I just can't stand tepid soup. What's the point? It's got to be hot. and, And I don't like cold soup, by the way. I'm not a gazpacho person. So, Soup's got to be hot. I think you get the picture here. Jesus is saying that lukewarm is useless, unpleasant, inadequate. So repent and wake up. And then he drives the point home with verse 20. That verse is so often taken out of context. Here's verse 20 again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Lots of people use this verse as an evangelism prop. Jesus stands at the door of your heart, knocking on the door of your heart, and if you would just open your heart and let him in, you would be saved, and okay, fine. I'm good with that. I get that. I want people to come to Jesus. Yes, but that's not what Jesus is getting at in context in this letter to Laodicea. What Jesus is saying is you're doing church without me. You're just as bad as Ephesus, but even worse because you have more wealth than Ephesus. Okay? Jesus is saying if you're going to do church, if you're going to go to all that trouble anyway, would you please welcome me in? So the solution of correction is to repent, turn away from the distractions that are causing you to be apathetic, mediocre, and lukewarm, and welcome Jesus back into your church. Open your eyes, be zealous, be on fire, inject some passion into what you're doing, stir each other up. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day that Jesus returns drawing near. 21st century application. I'm going to go from Big C Church to Redemption Arcadia Church in this 21st century application. I'm going to get personal and specific. If Redemption Arcadia ever becomes a church that is just going through the motion, that can take or leave Jesus, but is more comfortable leaving him, if Redemption Arcadia ever becomes a church that loses its joy, loses its fun, and loses its fellowship, if we ever become a church that becomes self-important, self-righteous, or haughty, if we ever quit seeking to be small so that Jesus is big, I will find myself another church, and I hope you do too. In the every church should be saying that. Every church should be saying that. You know, there's a book called Andersonville. I don't know if anybody's read it. It's a long book. It's it's an older book. Uh, it's about a Confederate POW camp in Georgia during the Civil War, and the book repeatedly says that apathy was as big or more a killer in the prisoner of war camp there apathy killed more people than the diseases that would constantly sweep through there. And if you remember when the Civil War happened, you know that diseases were rampant in in, uh, prisoner of war camps. Apathy killed more soldiers than the diseases that went through those. If you read Viktor Frankl, the psychiatrist, if you read his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he says the same thing. He spent three years in a Nazi uh, concentration camp, and he said more people died of apathy, of indifference, of losing hope than you could ever possibly imagine in that book. So, apathy kills. Apathy kills. Personally, let me ask you this. How many of you are striving for spiritual mediocrity? You know, you don't even have to strive to do that. If you're wandering aimlessly, you'll hit your target. In order to follow Jesus, there has to be, there has to be this focus. So how many of you are adrift, wandering aimlessly towards a faith life that is the equivalent of eating a bologna sandwich in oversized elastic waist sweatpants? (laughs) Does anybody really believe that apathy is the best approach to knowing Jesus? Christ comes to us, and we're called to pursue him. And here's why Jesus wants us to pursue him. It's not so that he can report back to the Father and say, I've got another mega church. There's another church in Phoenix with 2,000 people attending it. Father, aren't I wonderful? No, he doesn't have a self-esteem problem. He's telling us this because he wants us to have life. He knows what it is to have an abundant life. He is for us. Every one of these letters ends with Jesus saying, to him who conquers, to him who overcomes. It's that word nikei, that Greek word nikei. And so I want to remind you, From our sermon series in 1 John, what are the characteristics of those who overcome? Here they are. The overcomer believes. The overcomer has faith in Jesus. They have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, and he has overcome the world. Second of all, the overcomer loves. They love God, and they love others. That overcomes. That conquers. The overcomer, the conqueror, obeys, and it is not a burden nor irksome to obey Jesus. And finally, the overcomer knows the enemy and stands up to the enemy and knows false teaching, tests the spirits, and stands up to the heresies that are rampant in the church today. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, again, uh, thank you for the truth of your word and the directness of your word. And thank you that you have brought that to us and preserved it for us today. And now I just pray that we would have the courage because it does take courage. But we would have the courage given to us by the power of your Holy Spirit who is in us and with us and all around us today. I pray that we would have the courage to live this out. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.